0: But I, I didn't necessarily find my Steve Jobs passion in life. I found a career that I could be successful at and I try to get better and better at it. And I think that, so that quote really resonated with me. And I think as young people, you need to, you know, explore different things like, like I did with internships and sort of see what interests you and what, what you're good at.
1: Welcome to the Young Enterprises Podcast, the
0: end to end mentorship
1: platform for enterprising students to unlock your career. I'm your host, Jack Ildebrand, here with my co-host, Alec Agopian. We are closing chapter three, the real estate industry, with an informative interview from one of the best executives
2: in the San Ramon Valley. On this episode, we have the honor of speaking with Alex Marin Jr., the president and CEO of Sunset Development Company, a Bay Area real estate development company. Mr. Marin spent several years Working in investment banking at Goldman Sachs, the infrastructure private equity fund group in New York City. This was his first job after getting a bachelor's degree in international relations and affairs at Brown University. Before becoming the CEO and president of Sunset, he worked as the senior vice president and general manager, where he was responsible for the management of Sunset Development's Bishop Ranch and Livermore properties sunset development developed and owns the bishop ranch business park which has over 600 companies as tenants including Dialpad. mr marin has also led the development of city center the new downtown san ramon bishop ranch's retail housing and hotel hub and he's an expert sailor and holds a record for the fastest solo sailing time from san francisco to hawaii How cool is that? Mr. Marin, thank you for your willingness to come on our podcast. I really appreciate it. Spent a long time preparing for this. We wanted to make our podcast a really good product before I even approached my dad about potentially having you on at some point down the road, and I'm really happy we're able to get to this point. Great. Mr. Marin, I know you are the man behind City Center. I've been there many times. My family loves to eat at Slanted Door sea Casa and World Wraps tends to be the go-to place to go on a date with my girlfriend. It seems like something that San Ramon has never had but desperately needed.
1: Most people I know have seen this project unfold for the last few years, and we're all just interested to hear about was involved in such a massive scale of development like this how much time is involved from planning to leasing what did the process look like is there anything you learned that you might apply in your next development
0: yeah yeah so the <laughs> the, the fundamental problem with city center was that we wanted to build something that was going to be an epic downtown for San Ramon for like Hundred years, you know, for fifty years, and what the market would justify in that location is something very different than what we built. So, if we were to sell that site's fifteen acres, it so used to have four office buildings. So, first of all, we had to tear four office buildings down that were revenue producing and people loved because they are right next to Whole Foods and Peace. So, we had to rip down income producing office buildings, which for us isn't as bad because we can move the tenants into other buildings. But that upsets them, and and is not good. So you got to start with crossing off the, the ledger, 200,000 feet of office space and throwing it in the garbage, which that's hard. Then if you went out and sold the site to some buddy who was in the business of building retail real estate, they would have built something single story, you know, maybe with a little courtyard and a fountain and, and um, basically stucco boxes where they could put, you know, shops and restaurants and things like that in a big, you know, big five-story parking structure. In our opinion, when you drove down Bollinger, if you saw something kind of short, a little cutesy project with the string lights and, you know, big parking structure, it just wouldn't be that sort of epic downtown that we wanted. And so my dad said, you know, let's go talk to So we made the decision that we were going to build it because basically because what we wanted to do was not going to be justified economically, right? So... That has a lot of repercussions. It means that we had to learn how to build retail, totally different product type, totally different tenant base, totally different Everything's totally different because we're primarily, we're we're only office developers. So we had to learn how to do a new business, which was pretty hard. And luckily we we were able to recruit some really good talent, mainly from the Irvine company. Uh, Jeff Dodd did all our leasing and concepting of it. Jerry Engen was the contractor Rob Elliott was a designer. David Fields uh, was our general counsel. He did all the agreements and the leases and things. So the talent really helped us get over that new business hump. And then there's the issue of the fact that, you know, you want to build something epic and it's going to cost way more than what's justified. So, you know, normally if you went and built something for $200, you could get, you know, a hundred dollars of debt on it and put in a hundred dollars of equity in this case, you know, we could only get like $50 of debt because the income only justified a very low level of debt. So we had to come up with the rest of the money ourselves. And then my dad came up with a great idea to get Renzo Piano, world-class architect. And, you know, my dad's a very uh, connected and determined guy and, and uh, has great taste. And so when we went to meet with Renzo, they sort of connected on many levels. And, and I think Renzo liked the fact that we were father and son, and he liked the fact that we're, we're, we're general contractors ourselves you know, a lot of times these star architects are are dealing with the board of directors from a museum who are hiring a consultant, who are hiring a contractor. And I think that can get a little tiresome as a person who really just wants to build stuff and express his art in the form of buildings. And so it's a lot more efficient to work with us. But then, you know, they start going and they're used to building things in European cities and New York and places like that. And there's no parking in those projects. So the big issue became the parking. But ultimately we ended up with, you know, the parking being hidden behind that metal structure you see there, uh, mm-hmm. sort of on an equal plane with the movie theater and gym, which is in the adjacent building. So it really looks like one building. One has, you know, 800 stalls of parking. I forget exactly how many. And the other one has the a similar height because, you know, the the floor to floor, the distance between each floor in a parking lot is like nine feet or something like that. And the floor to floor in a movie theater, is like 20 or 30 because you need, you know, the huge cube. So, the thing lines up, looks really nice. I think when you approach it from Bollinger, when you approach the project, it doesn't look like a sort of ticky tacky suburban project. It looks like something really cool. You know, a lot of people don't like the metal box and, and, you know, that's Renzo's art. And I think one thing is that in, in 30 years, that metal box will probably still be causing controversy. Whereas, you know, lower, lower forms of architecture, a lot of them are not, not good. They get criticized day one and they're always criticized and not good, but, I love the metal and I I think it really harkens back to some things like Airstream trailers and Americana from the fifties and things. And I think it's pretty cool. The side track. I think it's cool. I think the squares is is a really cool piece. Mm -hmm. So we had to build something cool. Uh, It was going to cost a lot of money. We had to tear down buildings, couldn't get any debt. So we had to, and then, and then the last thing is that we were in a complete retail apocalypse. So all retail tenants were sort of shrinking Amazon was growing like a weed. Everybody was having trouble. And so it was like the worst time, on top of all this, it was the worst time to be leasing a project. We had to learn how to learn the business. And so thankfully, you know, through the genius of uh, Jeff and my dad and Renzo, we were able to make something that the tenants really, really loved and wanted to be in something authentic and real. And they loved seeing Renzo there. So people like Charles Font from this land or people like Equinox. Um, you know, a lot of movie theaters, world wraps. All these tenants really like the fact that they're in a project that's built by Renzo Piano, that's in a great demographic, that's not a big super mall, which probably are on the decline today. So those are the challenges. And, you know, we succeeded at some things. We we could have done better at, you know, others. I I, I wish I'd done a better job cost controlling because the cost you know, didn't, end up being, didn't end up being the 200. It ended up being more like, the you know higher than that. So um, <laughs> higher than so, that, much higher than that. And so we, we just kept the cost kept coming on, but you want to finish the project. But right now, post pandemic is just doing great. And, um, you know, we're, we're super proud of it. I'm really proud to have built it with my dad. And uh, I'm proud of that team that we built up there. And, um, you know, I think, you know, there's not, there's not a whole lot I would, I would do differently but I, I guess i wish i had known how hard it was going to be when i started to be more prepared.
2: <laughs> i think it's all worth it though because it's absolutely beautiful and it's so cool you guys did an incredible job so
1: Appreciate um mr Marin, this podcast is for high school and college students who don't know what they want to do with their careers or even what they should major in i was just figuring that out last year Can you help us understand a little bit about the different types of career paths in commercial real estate and specifically in your company? A little more about Young Enterprises. We are the end-to-end mentorship platform for enterprising students to unlock their career. So we have different industries on. Our first month was business communications, Dialpad, which I think is in that Bishop Ranch development, Yeah, correct. if I'm not mistaken. And then our second month was healthcare, and now we're in real estate. So, can you tell us a little bit about like the different career paths, specifically in your company?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so one I read a really I forget who said this, but I read a cool quote the other day that said, you know, finding your passion is is uh, overrated. What you really want to do is find something you're good at and, uh, and and make and make money doing it, or something like that, or find something you're great at and become become better at it in order to, in order to make, make, uh, make money, which I don't know about, you know, making money seems a little too specific, but there's lots of different things people try to achieve in their career than just making money. But I did like the fact that the person was saying, you know, you, cause it's hard when you're young, you, people say you need to find your passion and that that's pretty difficult. You know, you, you, for me, finding my passion and in, in what I do was about, you know, well, my passion really is, is working with the teams and being successful at completing projects, you know, so it wasn't like, I don't think that my passion is real estate or my passion is tech or my passion is this or that, but I, I didn't necessarily find my Steve Jobs passion in life. I found a career that I could be successful at and i try to get better and better at it. And I think that so that quote really resonated with me. And I think as young people, you need to, you know, explore different things like like I did with internships and sort of see... What interests you and what what you're good at is is key because when you're good at something, people will support you and mentor you and, and and push you to be better at that. So when people join our company, they're in one of a number of fields. We have accounting, so there's a number of different jobs in accounting where you can uh, you, you can do entry level jobs or accounts payable, accounts receivable. They're 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 cutting checks to vendors. They're bringing in rent checks. They're Balancing the general ledger, there, and then you get budgeting and all the all the cash flow projections and and transactions. To be honest, with you, I'm not that familiar with what accountants do day to day because I'm mainly dealing with them on the budgets, forecasting, cash flow forecasting, debt transactions, things like that, would tend to be the more senior roles. But you know, you start as an accountant, you start as a junior person. I think a lot of the um, people also start at accounting firms that, that we hire in uh, more senior positions. So that's a good way to start in accounting. Um, we have property management, which your dad runs, Alec, and and uh, that has a number of different roles. The primary one is property managers who come in and they, uh, they are dealing with all kinds of tenant relations issues, uh, dealing with a lot of accounting where they're sending out, they're dealing with budgets and then they're sending out um, tenant billings and, and dealing with the tenants on rent collections and things like that. They're dealing with all kinds of engineering issues and operating the buildings, making sure the tenants are comfortable, safe and happy. Uh, they're dealing with amenities and we have a group that takes care of that in the marketing group, but they coordinate all that on site. Um, and there's a facilities group, which has more engineering specific people in, your, in Harut's group, which really are more involved with the machinery of the building and making sure it's all all the preventive maintenance is done, and all when we have a crisis, which happens very often, as you know, because I'm sure your dad wakes up in the middle of the night and goes and deals with it. Tree falling down to a chiller, oh my gosh, to so a water leak, water leaks, oh, there's not working, and so that's kind of a cool part of that job. You just have to be Johnny on the spot to to uh, to go down and take care of those things, and and that's you know you sort of deal with the water leak, clean it up, put everything away, and hope the tenants didn't see anything happen, you know, so. And, you know, there's just, there's there, you can't uh, underestimate the amount of that stuff that comes up in the work that most people do to keep things going. So you have the property managers, you have the facility managers. We have a transportation group that deals with all, all of our buses and ride sharing, van pools, uh, bikes, uh, scooters, all, uh, shuttle, all that kind of stuff. We have uh, a marketing group that has all the community and outreach people in it. They deal with all of our external marketing. They deal with all the tenant events and things that we're doing, social social platforms uh, that we're on. Uh, We have a legal department, which is pretty small, but it has HR within it too. So um, that's a key group for keeping all our documents organized, our compliance organized, negotiating all the leases. You know, we have hundreds and hundreds of leases. We probably have like 700 leases, 800 leases. So um, I have all the loan agreements. We have all the documents with our city, so they're dealing with, negotiating all those because they're constantly being new ones are being negotiated and we're renegotiating things and um and then we have to comply with everything that's in the existing documents and then there's all the hr issues for our 160 employees right now is a heavy time for hr because we've got back to work return to work after the pandemic uh, then we have a big construction group general contracting group and i think when we hire people on construction they tend to be in specific they have specific degrees in that same with accounting um, where they've, they've majored in construction. Cal Poly has a great depart, construction department. you know that ranges from assistants and assistant property man, project managers all the way up to people that are running you know 10 20 million dollar jobs for us or the city center job um, which Jerry really ran, but there's a bunch of people that, that helped with him. Um, there's assistance there's uh, I'm trying to think of anything I'm missing. Um, leasing department obviously critical, uh, small, but critical. We have uh, four people in that group that deal with all our office leases and that you know keeps the top line going they renew all the leases. So that's big work. Right now we're actually tearing down five more buildings to build 400 houses at a place called BR6. And so those people right now are relocating all the like 300 tenants out of those buildings and giving them new homes in the new building. So they've been under a lot of pressure lately. I think that covers it. So there's a lot of different jobs. Yeah, that's and, a lot. You know, and and some of them have specific degrees. And if you're an accountant or you're construction construction, you know, you really want to have those specific degrees. If you're not, you know, I think property management. Some people have a lot of training that they do after school or they get it in school. But there's one of the cool things about real estate is there's lots of different jobs, and um, and so you can really it's a good place to find you know what you're good at. Like I said, I had a guy was an accountant. He was a great accountant, but he was getting bored. And we were going to lose him. And I said, you know, we said, you know, I really want to look at construction. So we picked him up, put him in construction, and now he's doing great. And um, so that's the kind of lateral move you can make. Whereas if you're at a company that does has fewer departments, it's it's tougher. So lots of different stuff going on. You know, at real estate, it's not the most exciting thing because,
2: you it know, if you're working, exciting.
0: Well, if you're working at Google or something, I think, you know, there's, you're, you're probably, you know, the, the day-to-day is probably higher pressure um high, you know, or goldman sachs it's, high, high, it's sort of an up or out culture where you're you know everybody's working 20 hours a day and if you go home or you you want to spend time with your child or something like that usually they i think they've changed now they want they've become a lot better in that regard but um you know back, back then I mean, you, you were really encouraged to be in the office 7 days a week for a lot of time
2: mm-hmm. and
0: so i think real estate provides you you know a lot of opportunities for advancement different roles um, a culture where you can sort of sort of advance and and deploy yourself, and it also provides a reasonable home life, which you know I think attributes a lot to our culture, where we've got a lot of long term employees who are dedicated to the team and, and really believe in what we do. Um, you know, we do something cool. We provide uh, great office space, you know, top of line office space for for customers to grow their business. And I think we're one of the best products in the market in that regard City Center's is a great product. And when we start building apartments, they'll also be great. And so you can really believe in what we're doing. And, and I think that makes it easy to, to be a part of the team, having the family values and, and really believing in the product. It's mm-hmm. a simple product too. And you know, we're not trying to create a video game that's super complicated and you don't know uh, exactly. what people like, or who's going to buy it, or it's a simple product. You know, so mm-hmm. If you take it seriously and you try hard, it's, it's easy to be good at it. And, um, and we're really proud of, of what's been achieved um, by the team that's, that's there and the team from the past. So.
2: What would you say are the types of skill sets that kids our age need to learn either while at school or outside of school in order to get involved in a career in real estate? And would those skills differ If they decided to specialize in a career in operations, leasing or development in real estate.
0: I think, you know, accounting, if you're going to be in accounting, clearly you need to get some finance skills. I think basic finance skills and business skills. seems like almost everyone should take, you know, should take some, even if you're going to be a doctor, the doctors get involved in the, the, I think the business side of being a doctor is one of the most frustrating things for doctors. So everybody should have some, business classes and some finance classes. Um, I say that, but I didn't have, I had one econ class, which I didn't do well at, but, um, you know, I think those things are 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 good to have no matter what you do. Uh, construction, there's some specific skills you can have. Property management and leasing are really our customer facing roles. So I don't know, are there classes? There aren't classes for that, right?
2: I haven't come across any yet. Yeah, yeah, me either. It's still so basic with classes in college. But, I mean, we've only done yeah. our first years, so we haven't been exposed to that much yet.
0: You know, the, the things, when you meet a great salesperson, either it's just in their DNA, which I think most of the time it's in their DNA, but I think a lot of times I hear that they've done some kind of, like I had a, I had a friend who is an awesome salesman, and he his summer job was working on the Canadian uh, railways where you'd take a big group of tourists off the railway and you know, at a stop, and they—you'd you'd have to sell them on different stuff. You know, they're the different—you know, whether you want to go see the glacier in the helicopter or whether you'd want to take the ferry boat ride, and and it was known that these guys that were in his position would get kickbacks from the from the different operators of these tour things. So he would learn sort of how to sell the people on, you know, the helicopter ride because clearly that's the most lucrative, you know, <laughs> the most lucrative yeah. one. And so I, I, I never had that. And I'm a terrible salesperson, but I think learning, learning to read people and to not be too pushy or to be to be pushy when you, when you see an opportunity or see what, where the needs are and, and position your product correctly is is somewhat of a natural born skill, but it's also learned. And there's there's roles you can get where you know you might not think that learning sales is is a key ski you, skill you get by being a kid you know, the tour coordinator and the rail the tour tourist thing in the railway, but there's all kinds of little spots where you can learn how to sell stuff to people and how to position your product, whether it's a hot dog or, you know, a hundred thousand feet of office space in Bishop Branch. It's kind of the same skill set. And um, obviously our guys are pretty sophisticated and they're not selling hot dogs, but you know, you, you
2: it can be practiced all the time.
0: Yeah, it's something you can learn. And and I think the deal with you know one of the things with our sales staff is that is that you know leasing staff is that when you're selling something that's going to cost you know, there's a lot these deals are worth millions of dollars and you know it, it's pretty sophisticated stuff so you want to start on something you know maybe in apartments or something like that where you can you know if you, if you have a couple a couple strikes you know you can you can still you can still get up to the plate and and, and give it a shot you're not kicking yourself but if we lose a hundred thousand foot deal, Uh, that that's not going to be a good thing for my dad (laughs) so exactly yeah i think sales talent and then you know and then i guess maybe in terms of the property management piece there's there's more and more of a hospitality piece to it i know that's something that's taught and i think that's that's lacking in a lot of and a lot of people that that you see in the business where they don't they're not as our, our team i think is 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 good at this where you know, you, you 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 want to have the customer be happy. There's a customer always right mentality, and you want to, you know, be transparent with people and and sort of get them to where they need need to be. Because a lot of times in real estate, you know, if somebody's operating a, a an office, they don't know how the air conditioning works or how the how the internet can be, you know, enhanced or how the furniture system could be better. And so our job is to be there to help them and. And even if there's a, there's a lot of frustrating personalities out there, and so you need somebody that's willing to deal with people and and get past that and be and be helpful. So, basic business and econ and finance stuff like that's good. Specific to construction, if you want to do that, and then if there's hospitality skills uh, for property management, that'd be good to do. But certainly in the summer, if you want to be in sales, you got to get out there and do something scrappy because that's where you learn those those sort of because it's intuitive. You know, you can't be. You can't you, you can't be second guessing yourself when you're in the moment with a customer. You know, you have to you have to say the say the things that that are going to position your product. I'm not saying to say say things that aren't true, you know, but you, you, you need to understand what the customer wants and quickly enunciate what you have that matches with what they need and, and what you can deliver, you know, even if even if you don't have it today, a lot of times we've you know, we with with a big customer we have, we put a bus on the road to track them to San Francisco, we, we did it. We hired a, a 50 person, uh, you know, Google bus type of thing. And that's what landed the deal. And so, you know, that was a $200,000 a year commitment that obviously, obviously the leasing people can't make that, but sometimes when you're in the meeting, you got to put stuff like that out there to make it happen. And, and so, um, yeah, that's a, that's a special skill set.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's almost never sticking to a script. It's like improv. Maybe that would yeah. even help.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of times if, if you're talking to somebody who lives in San Ramon, they don't want to hear about your transit program, right? Exactly. They want to hear about, you know, about uh, about the convenience of it, how easy it is for them to move from their current office into this office, how we take care of you long term, you know, the amenities that are close by at City Center, stuff like that. So,
1: Would you say proficiency in Excel is necessary when working in real estate?
0: Yeah, and all of us know how to use Excel. I think it's good to know it, but you know, a lot of times people are just using it as a data storage mechanism. They're not putting formulas in there and stuff like that. I, I happen to, I happen to be pretty good with Excel because of the Goldman background, and I, I use it a lot just because I do a lot of my own sort of analysis and things. But I'd say you know, it's it's role specific. If you're in accounting, super important. Everybody needs to have a basic handling of all that stuff, of all the applications. So I guess we should add that to the list in terms of. Yeah, Microsoft Word, Microsoft Office Suite, uh, or Google, you know, Google. I know a lot of people use Google Docs now, but I think making sure you know how to use the Microsoft stuff is important, and, you know, I, I use all the keystrokes on the Excel, which that's always a big time saver, so I don't know if they teach that stuff, but it's almost like when I was in school, they teach touch typing. I don't know if they teach that anymore. To you I you know you probably just know that just, you know, not meant it meant not having to look at the keyboard when you type.
2: Oh, that's hard. My mom can do that. And I still have to look up and down sometimes. They don't teach that anymore. No, no not no. really. No, yeah, it just, it's just that. why don't they teach us practical things in school? It's so crazy.
1: There's plenty of course hero classes that you can take for Excel, though.
2: Just take them online.
0: I'm actually taking computer networking class online right now. So there's lots of that stuff on there. What would
1: you say is the most significant thing you have learned that contributed to your success and growth so far in your professional career?
0: Well, it's something I'm still trying to be better at, which is how to work with with other people. You know, I think when you're, you know, when I was younger, you you're so ambitious that you, you know, you you're pushing hard, and you you, you I, I I could have done more, and I still could do more to to sort of. Um, you know, leverage other people, get people on board the team more, you know, be more team oriented than, than, um, you know, I was always the guy that thought, you know, you start doing something, you start, you know, I would, I would take something over and just do it myself. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I felt like it, at Goldman that maybe that was more of a, you know, you're there so long, you could just do things yourself. And you, and you, you uh, were w- rewarded for being the person that, you know, deliver tonight and i think as you grow beyond being a you know analyst or something you need to learn how to leverage people i had a guy i worked with named justin doyle at goldman who who would always lean on me to do stuff and he did it in a really nice way and um and i i learned a lot from him um and so knowing how to delegate i, I wish i'd been a better delegator and mentor and um been sort of uh, you know, been more fostering of relationships and people that I work with rather than, you know, sort of always trying to do things on my own. And, and I think as a, as a leader, there's this, there's this book called the one minute manager that I love where he's talking about how he only has to work one minute or whatever. And the basic gist of it is he gives people clear instructions about what they need to do. And, uh, he doesn't do anything himself. He tells people what they need to do and come back to him if they have any questions, and that's the, the basic gist of the book. And the, that point is, that a guy actually gave it to me when we we had a guy depart. He was actually doing your job, Alec, or your dad's job, Alec. And you know, I was I was puzzled that when I when I took over for him, there was virtually no emails coming into his email account, and I thought, gosh, this. I wonder if was, well, why that is. What he's doing, and, and my friend told me who's a successful venture capitalist. He said that that means he was doing a great job. You know, if, if everything was hap- he says, if everything was happening and everything was going well, and uh, he didn't need to be constantly you know inserting himself and stuff, then that that's a sign of a well run machine. And that was a big learning learning point for me that you know you you know you really want to have have people be able to complete the complete the work, and as a manager, you want to be there to to make corrections and answer questions and. And kind of be on the more strategic side, and I—it's taken me a long time to move in that direction, and you know, to really become passionate about about the people I work with, like your dad. I mean, I love working with your dad, and so you, you grow. And I'm, I only just turned forty, so I'm getting there. But uh, you know, seeing seeing other people succeed and advance is is probably the most exciting thing in in business. And um, you know, when you when you get to the end of something, and, and somebody's really you know, advanced it on their own. We just did this big solo project. Your dad dealt with, you know, pretty much on his own. And, and you know, I think I hope he's super proud of it. And so, you know, I'm I'm proud of that guy. I didn't really have to do that much. I just he'd ask a question from time to time or pass something by me. But you know, and that's so as as I get older, I, I think I want to really work work harder on that because it's been the, my favorite thing so far, and I hope something I can k- keep enjoying as so I get more you know more advanced in my years. One minute, man. Yeah.
2: So, <laughs> what does the future of Sunset Development Company look like in terms of development? I looked at the CityWalk website. Could you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, we got 4,500 units entitled in the middle of San Ramon, which is seems like a colossal amount of units. But in cities like this, you know, you really need to develop a lot more housing and affordable housing and people don't want to go out to the edges of Doherty Valley and and do greenfield developments of those nice you know, grasslands out there. So um, we're excited to be able to house those units in Bishop Ranch. We're excited to be able to have people that um, work and live in Bishop Ranch to come out of the city center. They can walk. You know, the thing about an office park is it's very it's a very nine to five Monday through Friday place. So in the evenings and on weekends it's dead, and uh, that made a pretty easy job for the security people because if they saw you know somebody driving around the parking lot in the middle of the night, something's probably up you know, in a city, you you want to have activity and, and uh, stuff going on all the time. So we're really excited about that. I'm excited to deliver, you know, 700 affordable units in San Ramon. So more people can can live in San Ramon that couldn't necessarily afford it today. And I think, you know, the office tenants long-term will be happy to have housing more proximate to their, to their uh, employees. So that's the 4,500 units. These are elevator served type units. So You drive into a garage, you get into an elevator, you go up to the sixth floor and you get there. They have a pool and that kind of stuff. The the, the product we're building, tearing down Bishop Aaron 6 is actually a separate entitlement. You're going to build 400 homes there. Summerhill is a housing company that's going to build those. So we're removing 570,000 feet of office space from the inventory, uh, adding 407 homes. And those will be single family homes and townhomes. So uh, not elevator served. Uh, housing. So same story though, but those would be people that own it versus most of ours would be renters. Yeah. So, so 25 year plan, lots of huge parks, you know, along the the great kind of setup that San Ramon's built. San Ramon's a great, great place to build because they have great staff and great city council planning commission and all kinds of people involved with the community that really dictate if you build things with big parks and big trees and nice amenities and things like that. So should be super beautiful, very walkable, not a lot more retail because we want to keep the retail focus down at city center. And yeah, then so then we have the 407 homes next door to that. And then kind of what we're looking at near term, this pandemic is sort of potentially could have a, a very big impact on our office component. We have uh, 6 million feet of office space, you know, with work from home and all that, we I think we might see demand drop significantly for those offices. And over time, we'll probably be tearing down more office buildings and backfilling it with houses. So, you know, say if we took a million feet off, we still had 5 million feet of office. That's still a lot of office. So uh, the more housing we can add, I think it will be accretive to people who want to have their office here. And then, um, you know, we might add some retail, maybe another gym or a big, another supermarket or things like that. So mm-hmm. we want San Ramon to be a work, live, play community where, it's an activated downtown. We're calling Bishop branch really the downtown of San Ramon now. And Mm -hmm. so I'm excited to sort of make the, the the turn from office park to, to downtown. And really what we want is guys like you to be, you know, to be excited to come back here. I don't think too many, too many, your, your friends would would say, you know, I can't wait to get back to San Ramon to the sprawling sprawling suburbs to I just want to live in a subdivision after college in a, Two bedroom house with a pool. It's just not how how it is. But you know, if you might think about it, if you if you could live right next to city center, walk to Equinox, you know, take your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever to the movies or dinner, and then walk to your job. You, you, depending on what happens in San Francisco with crime and homelessness, you might you might think that's a pretty, yeah, pretty good option. So that's
2: not a bad gig, and you have a plan in place to potentially adjust to the lesser demand for office space, which is great. And you're creating a better Santa Mon at the same time. And you just finished up City Center, and now you're taking on an even bigger project that's twice as long.
0: Yeah. Well, we we always need that. We know we're workers, like I said. We need to keep keep it going.
2: Uh-huh. A lot going so on.
1: I couldn't imagine developing a 25 year plan. I'm getting a like, little bit better how, at planning, but a 25 year.
0: We want these things to be nice so you know you can't you can't build and release 2000 units in one year right Mm -hmm. so you got to kind of meter them out lease them up meter out some more and uh, build good projects And we want to keep the quality up so we didn't want to promise that they'd be done in in a shorter time period
2: are you the person that's writing up a 25-year plan for this project
0: well i did it with with our development team you know jerry and, and my dad and we kind of put that together because there's a bunch of amenities that go along with each phase. So you have to sort of say, okay, we're going to build this one. And when we do that, we're going to build this park and this community center and this transit center so that, you know, the city can ensure that we don't just build all the units and then throw in the stuff at the last minute. So there's sort of a, you know, we had to sort of stage it out.
2: It's a step-by-step process. You just start yeah. with a blank, a blank computer document and start from scratch. Can't even wrap my mind around that.
0: It's pretty much, yeah. You have an architect. That works, there. yeah.
2: <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, I love I love planning things. I'm a big business plan planner guy, so this intrigues me a lot, a 25-year plan. Yeah, it's great at it.
0: It should be good. It's going to be a good place. Hopefully, you guys come back and live in one of those spots in a few years.
2: It sounds mm-hmm. very exciting.
1: So you began your professional career at Goldman Sachs, an investment bank. How did you end up there out of college?
0: Yeah, so I actually, it was kind of a, twisty uh road there i was in college and i had done some investment banking internships and that was kind of what what i thought i wanted to do it's what my dad had done and then i sort of got a wild hair to do something else you know junior year i spent abroad and i decided you know perhaps i'd want to do something else before i joined join the corporate life and i started to look at joining the military and I actually spent a whole year after college working for uh, Speaker Pelosi in San Francisco and training to go into the military, and then I got I got uh, canceled out of that when I got my last flight physical. They they told me I couldn't fly and they I couldn't go to my officer candidate school date in Pensacola because I had uh, this blood trait called thalassemia minor, and uh, doesn't affect anything really. But it kind of that's the way the military is and. And so that caused me to rethink everything. And I started my job search probably in like February. And it was sort of neat. I, you know, I didn't really have, I wasn't an econ major. I was an international relations major. And I found this neat job at Goldman Sachs where there were, there was a group they'd formed called the strategic group. And they helped advising companies, uh, international companies, mainly about, about, uh, you know, sort of global shifts. And there was this really visionary guy named Patan Patel who was there and he, would go out to the investment banking clients, you know, where Goldman would make a make money by doing an IPO or a merger or something like that. But he would sort of be a an add on to the traditional sort of banking relationship where he'd advise people, you know, like Nokia on the future of cell phones or uh, things like that. Yeah, it was a really good fit because the people were a little less i banking, you know, centric. They weren't that kind of classic i banker. People are a little more, you know, more of a global team. Uh, different people from all over the world. So that was a, a great way to start. That wasn't sort of the harsh. I got the training, the standard training where we all show up there, which was great. But I wasn't sort of thrown into that as quickly as someone. It was an, it was a it was a great group to be in. When you were trying to get that job at Goldman Sachs,
1: what was the interview process like? Do you have any tips for us?
0: So yeah, they, you know, I did a million of these interviews, and and it was the beginning of Google, and so you'd go online and you'd get some some tips from people. This is like 2004, I guess. And so you'd get tips from other people and, and there was definitely a lot of questions that you'd read online. It was like, you know, the guy would ask somebody you know, how many pennies do you think you could fit in this room? Um, you know, things like that. And so I was sort of prepared for some zingers and, um, mm-hmm. but with all interviews, I think mainly people are, are at that level, at least people are trying to understand whether or not you're a, a cultural cultural fit you know whether you're going to be able to get along with people and you're going to show up to work on time you know act appropriately i mean when you're 21 you're 22 you you mainly want somebody who's going to have a positive attitude work hard and um sort of not you know and be additive to the team i don't think you're looking for a huge skill set from somebody if you're hiring a chief executive who's you know coming into a company you need a lot more boxes to check in terms of what their experience is and all that but um, so I was nervous about you know I didn't really know that at the time. So I was nervous about what ringer questions I would get, and the one I got was what was the ang- what was the angle of the hands on the clock at twelve fifteen? Mm. And so you had to figure out that you know the 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 little hand is going to be a quarter of the way through between the twelve and the one, you know. So everybody would say it's 90, 90 degrees, but it's not. It's a little less because the 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 big hands you know a quarter of the way between the twelve and the one. So you had to break it down into 360 divided by twelve divided by twenty five. You know, take twenty five percent, and I, I passed that. What's so your answer? Well, whatever that is. So you know, it's, you know, three. You know, so so if you take a quarter of the, the angle between the two, and you know, you take it out of the ninety, then you get the right answer. And so I I uh, I got that one right. But mainly, I think the purpose of the question is is that you know most people will answer ninety. And then I knew it wasn't going to be 90 because it'd be too easy. And they kind of walk you through, well, how would you think about this? And so they see whether or not you can sort of under pressure, you know, walk through the question and work it out with them. Or are you just going to fold and sort of get giddy and and, and, uh, and not be able to do it? So I passed that. And I think, you know, I got along well with the people and I definitely worked super hard. Those jobs are are crazy. You know, they pay you really well. You know, making six figures and you're right out of college it was great. I don't know what it is now with inflation and everything, but that was great back then. And I had a great apartment and stuff. But I was never there, and, and you just commit yourself to to morning, noon, and night being there and taking the opportunity to. That's one of the things with the remote work now. You know, you, you when you're when you're in the, that position and you're a go getter and you want to advance, being there was the most important thing because you know sometimes at nine, ten o'clock at night the MD would be leaving and they'd kick something your way because you happen to be the one sitting there. And uh so you wouldn't get that with remote work. Did
1: you say just, that you had an internship before your first job at Goldman Sachs or now?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I had uh, I had I had three in high school. I would do different stuff. You know, I'd work worked for a friend of mine who had a business development company in San Francisco. I painted uh, I painted the windowsills on a sail off once. I'm a big sailor. I thought I'd work at the sail off and learn how to put sails together, but they had me paint the windows and I did a terrible job. So I don't think that 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 wasn't my 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 best uh, performance as an intern, and then in college I worked for a company named Brown Brothers Harriman, really really cool investment bank on Wall Street, and I think that really prepares you a lot for because when I, at least me when I was in college, you guys are super professional even at your young age in college. You're you're hosting a podcast and you're you've got your act together here, but you know I think a lot of kids you just showing up to work and figuring out how to you know. Get your get your pay stuff worked out with HR and, you know, what your dress code supposed to be and how you're supposed to act at different client events and things. Just the basics were really important to being able to advance and getting that that job after college. So, yeah, the internships are, you know, I think some kids are super, super ready for that stuff and they're they're uh, really additive in the internship. But I think mainly you're trying to figure out what corporate life's all about. So Brown Brothers Harriman was a great place to work. And being in New York City, at you know, 1920 was, you know, you, you go from the protection of a college dorm and, and uh, everybody's sort of telling you what to do and where you're going to eat and, and how it's going to be to the wild, wild, open New York City. So that was, it was cool. to ride the subway and, you know, figure all that stuff out. It's how you uh-huh. get going in life.
2: All on your own too.
0: Yeah. My sister was there. she's more into the art scene, so she wasn't necessarily helping me out with the you know subway and and uh, the work stuff, but certainly yeah, having a family member there was nice.:
2: I drew out a little clock here, and I'm still having a really hard time figuring out how it's not ninety degrees because it looks ninety degrees, but you're right, that's too easy.
0: Yeah, yeah, so so uh, you know if you take three sixty and divide it by twelve, it's thirty. so there's thirty degrees between each e- each sector of the clock. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and, and 30, you know, you take 25% of 30, it's seven and a half degrees. So the, the little hand, you know, would have advanced because, because, you know, by the time it gets all the way around the clock, it's on the one, right? Yeah. So the little hand would have advanced seven and a half degrees if it's 30, you know, twenty twenty five 25% into the, into the hour. So
2: I'm not the biggest math guy, but that does make sense. Yeah. yeah. Now that you've walked me through it. Anyways. I feel like everyone knows the words investment bank, but nobody really understands what they actually do. Could you tell us what your experience at Goldman Sachs was like, what you worked on and what you learned that helped you eventually move forward into a commercial real estate career?
0: Yeah. So, you you know, you show up these things and everybody says, I'm going to work in iBanking and I work at Goldman Sachs. And that sort of has a, I think for for young people it, or people that have never done it, it has one sort of. Stereotype that goes along with that, which is, you know, buttoned up uh, dress code, and you're working in a big building and you're making reports and Excel models and things. But the reality is, is, these banks have a bunch of different divisions, and I won't be able to remember all of them right now. But, you know, the big ones I remember were investment banking, where I was, and then there's asset management. You know, so there's a whole, and that's a huge people group because there's a bunch of client-facing stuff and products that they're putting together so that you could have a mutual fund or you could have a, uh, a a private equity fund or you could have a exchange-traded fund or these people are sort of trading and assembling products for the public and for pension funds and things like that. And then they have uh, a bunch of you know f- fixed income groups that are trading and they're creating, you know, mortgage-backed securities, they're packaging, you know, Debt, debt products. And there's a, some really interesting groups that trade the money of the bank. So I, I think it was called Special Situations. And I had a friend that worked in that, this guy, Josh Kapowitz, this cool guy. And I quickly realized that he was doing stuff that was a total different level of what I did because we sat down for a company. He's telling me about how he just bought a 747 that morning. You know, So they were buying and leasing you know, large aircraft and uh, doing all kinds. Of, you know, they had a, a power plant out in out of New Jersey that they bought. So they were investing the bank's money in these deals and and they were always sort of distressed and super interesting. Uh, Then there's private equity groups themselves that are buying the assets that go into funds that were raised by the bank. So they raise a pool of money from people for private investments. You know, those private equity ones traditionally were um, real estate and then, you know, companies that could handle high leverage. Uh, it's gotten a little more diverse as the market's been more saturated, but in the day, you know, a company that has you know very good recurring revenue was traditionally not as uh, debt capitalized as it could have been because the the company because you know if they're selling something like you know fire trucks, fire trucks, you know seagrave big manufacturer fire trucks, they can handle a high debt burden because a certain amount of fire trucks are going to be bought every year and you don't have to worry that the revenue is not going to be there. So they can always service the debt. And then somebody comes in, buys the fire truck company, puts debt on it, puts a little bit of equity in it. And when it when they can grow it, if they can grow it through different means, they can, you know, with only, you know, 80% debt, 20% equity, if the thing goes up twenty percent, they've made a hundred percent return on their on their uh, their money, so that was kind of what the private equity group does. And there's a real estate side of it that does the same thing with buildings, because obviously buildings typically have you know a lot of recurring revenue in the form of leases. Um, you know, you're not it's not a startup type of thing, so you might have startup tenants, but usually the revenue is pretty recurring. So investment banking, what they do is they they help, like I said, advising companies. If it's a public company, you can do an uh, a follow on offering. You can help them to buy another company. So we did a lot of metals and mining presentations where we'd, you know, you, you'd create, my job was mainly creating these 200 page books where every single, and the metals and mining one, I remember there's this guy, Alistair, every single time you mentioned copper in a pie chart, there's probably 300 pie charts in this thing. It has to be the same color. And you'd find it on page 168. You, you made copper purple rather than red. And every other page is red. What's wrong with you? And it's, you know, um, that was the level that, the expectation that was there, but it was good because it taught you how to, you know, you'd have your Excel model that you create, you know, create all the, the charts, mainly from public information. And then you'd talk about all the different acquisition opportunities and um, and how that could, you know, influence their ability to, to increase their capacity to mine more of one metal if they bought this other company. And you know, obviously, I wasn't that in tune with the metals and mining industry. But you you sit there and you learn it. You read through all the reports. You put it in the Excel model, and you show what their company would look like combined with another company if they bought them, and and all the financial metrics, how they would change synergies to break even, because they always talk about synergies in terms of you know how much less corporate overhead they would need. So I wouldn't say that the work that I did you know, in, in that context, in terms of the, the meeting that were broad brushstrokes, was that helpful? It was more to have a talking piece for the, the senior executives to talk to, you know, the, the company about potential things that would happen. But when the action really started, you'd have a company that wanted to go public. So like I did an IPO for a company in KNF Industries, there are aircraft wheels and brakes manufacturer, again, bought by a, a uh, a private equity company called Aurora Capital. In this case, it wasn't Goldman Sachs that bought them. Aurora Capital bought them. And, uh, you know, wheels and brakes for jets. Y- you got to buy new brakes. The thing that's expensive is the actual brake pad, not the brake housing itself, because they put the brake housing, they, they sell it for nothing or give it away to, um, to these, you know, jet manufacturers. Embraer was a big one. Bombardier was a big one for them. So they basically give this brake system to the company. And then every time the pilot jumps on the brakes, the way that, you know, we've all experienced when we get on those regional jets, the guy sure slams on the brakes and then every so many hours they have to replace them and they, they jam them on the cost of the pads. And so, you know, that's recurring revenue so they could handle a lot of debt. Aurora capital bought them. And in the case of this one, what they did was they, they had been expensing, uh, the the cost of those breaks that they were putting on the new jets and aurora capital realized that really when you're investing in a in a revenue stream you shouldn't expense that you should capitalize it and amortize the cost of that upfront you know giveaway break housing over the period of life say it's 10 years that that'll be in service and so by taking that off the income statement and putting on the balance statement the balance sheet and only having the amortization in the income statement they boosted the the income of the company tremendously and almost a year later we took it out for like double the valuation they bought it for and uh and we did a an ipo and basically my job there was traveling around the country with dirkson charles and ken shorts i remember the cfo and ceo and we, we we hit we'd hit like six towns in a day you'd go to fidelity and all these different managers trying to promote the, the stock and we worked with goldman's equity capital markets group that's another group that that deals with the the issuance of new new equity securities. Awesome Khalil was the guy's name. So you meet these people and you, it, you know, it was really the best part about it was meeting all these different people and 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 figuring out what they do and figuring out how it can be helpful. And so whether you're making a book, you're going to a client meeting, you're doing analysis on a specific IPO offering, or you're traveling around trying to get people to be interested in a stock to help Aurora Capital and KF Industries, our clients, you get to do a lot of different stuff. And and uh, there's a bunch of different roles in the bank that get involved. And so it's not just the one investment banking stereotype. There's you know a bunch of different things that happen.
2: Mm-hmm. What was the what was event the- or realization that you had that led you to start your career at Sunset Development Company after you left Goldman Sachs?
0: Yeah, well, I, I so I was really lucky. And just briefly, I, I was in this investment banking thing. And then I met a guy through uh, my dad was friends with the CEO of Ornado big real estate investment truck, trust named Mike Passatelli. I was interested in getting into real estate because I wanted to ultimately go back and join the family business. And so I went and met with Mike in this big tower in Midtown, a very formal big office. And, and um, Goldman, you know, Goldman's offices were always, you know, not, not that nice. And so it was a pretty cool meeting. And he said, you really have to meet my wife. She's a partner at Goldman. And I thought, OK, that's great. So I went down and met his wife, Beth, who's, you know, both of them have become friends of mine. And she said, well, there's this guy, Steve, Steve Feldman, uh, who's starting a new business. He's coming out of the corporate real estate side. They built, built uh, 30 Hudson Goldman's building over in New Jersey, and they were getting ready to build the new building in West Side Highway. And we started this business there, uh, which was helping real estate private equity operators sort of get into the real estate fund business, which is a whole nother thing. And uh, But that was short-lived because Hank Paulson was good friends with this guy, Steve. Steve was just an amazing guy. And he was tapped by Hank Paulson to start Goldman's first infrastructure fund, which invested you know, uh, money that we'd raised along with some of Goldman's money in big infrastructure deals, which means ports and toll roads. Uh, we bought some cell towers, gas pipelines, things that are, again, recurring revenue uh, and can be heavily leveraged. And so I jumped into that. that was, so I did like three months in the, in the strategic group thing like 10 months in the investment banking thing. And then the the rest of the three years I was with uh, this infrastructure group. It's really where uh, it was a small entrepreneurial group, but I really had a big chances to to step up and uh, do to Steve and, and Jonathan Hunt, who were uh, two guys there that that I sort of started with. And really, I just actually took them. My family did a big cruise around from San Francisco to Newport, Rhode Island, and we stopped in New York City and took them out sailing. It was cool to reconnect with them and you know people that were so important to my career. You know, from there, I, I wanted to get into real estate more. Uh, this was infrastructure which was kind of real estate. And so I wanted to get back home at some point. So I joined a guy named Richard Cohen at a company named Capital Properties in New York for another couple years. He was a really great guy, again, working one-on-one with the boss and just a really, really uh, interesting guy, really talented and and gave me a lot of, of leash to to go do things. And You know, some days I feel like I didn't do as good of a job because the financial crisis hit, and a lot of the projects we were doing, you know, had to be sort of shuttered because they were pretty ambitious in terms of the cost versus the return. And so that that financial crisis moment was kind of when I realized it was time to move back to California and get married and and start working with my dad and and you know the opportunity to to sort of get out of the rat race in New York and move move to a job where you're. You know, you're partnered with somebody who's your family. It sort of gets rid of all the issues of working in in New York City, where it's just ultra competitive. You know, I knew my dad had my back. He knows I have his back, and and we have mutual goals, and you know, our mutual success is is mutual. So it was a really good opportunity to take sort of the best of what I've, I'd learned, the best things about the work I was doing, and, and combine them with sort of things that eliminated the the competition of it. I got a huge leg up, obviously in the business and you know it's well capitalized well-run business with great culture and an amazing group of employees alec your dad wasn't there yet but we, we were able to attract him then it became even better and so yeah that was just it was just the right time and and that financial crisis moment you know, was probably something you guys didn't didn't experience as employees but certainly experienced what was going on with your families i'm sure and and um, tough time so uh it was good to be back at the family business and help out a little bit in the beginning and and then keep growing it until today.
1: For sure. So I'm pretty interested in investment banking. What was the most exciting part about working at Goldman Sachs? And I think you said Aurora Capital.
0: Yeah. So it was Goldman Sachs. We worked, Aurora Capital as a client. And then um, I worked at Capital Properties after that. I think the exciting thing is just the scale. You know, you're, I, I laugh sometimes about, you know, like nowadays I'm dealing with, you know, every problem from like the other day I was, we were having issues with our email server. I'm talking to, you know, David Fields who runs our, who's our chief administrative officer and Max is our IT uh, head of IT. And, and they were talking about what's going on with the Barracuda server and why it's, you know, why it's trapping these emails. But when you're at Goldman, if you have a problem with your BlackBerry, you just drop it off somewhere and, you know, they, they, they deal with it. There's rule, you can't, you know, you can't use your own laptop. There's all these rules and uh, you know, um, there's even a print shop, you know, if you want to get your book printed, you drop it off at the printers and um, you know, you, you, they print it for you. And, and there, so everything's handled at that scale. It's all centralized and handled. Pretty sweet. And so that, you know, but, but that's not what's exciting about it. That you get your books printed for you. The exciting thing is, is that, every once in a while you get an invite to go up to the top floor and sit on a meeting with the CEO of Goldman Sachs, who's, you know, who's in the Wall Street Journal every day. And, you know, that might've happened twice for me, you know, but, you know, again, you know, if you're remote working, nobody's going to tap you on the shoulder and say, Alex, come, come, uh, come on up with me and join this meeting and didn't say anything, you know, just introduce yourself and sit there. But, to be a small, tiny piece of, of, of a wheel that's operating at that scale is pretty cool. You know, the total, I think that some of these deals we did were like $8 billion deals. And, um, actually funny sort of side story. I, I wanted to get a job at a company named Related, which is a really, really great real estate company. And I, again, went to the big office of Time Warner center and the guy, uh, Bruce Beal was who's this totally big wheel. He was a big wheel then now he's a really big wheel. And, um, and, uh, and so he asked me, you know, tell me about financing you did. And I said, well, we did this, you know, $3 billion thing here and $2 billion. And he said, yeah, but, but you know, tell me uh, what you did on, that, on the loan agreement. You know, what were the key terms of the loan agreement and things like that? And I had no idea. You know, somebody else deals with the loan agreement. All I was doing was running the thing and, and dealing with all the due diligence and running the Excel model. And there's a debt department that placed the loans and negotiated the terms, and so in some ways it's a hindrance when you want to get into a more entrepreneurial business because you're, you're just not dealing with stuff at the, at the small scale. But that was, that was the cool part about it too.
2: So my dad has told me that you are an expert when it comes to sailing and that you hold a record for solo sailing from San Francisco to Hawaii. What was that experience like? That must've been crazy. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm
0: sure it's similar to, you know, you're a much better baseball player than I am a sailor. I think, you know, you, you, when you're sailing, you want to ad- advance and do, do the next best thing. And it's, it's all about, you know, getting, getting better at, at what you do. And so I had, I had gotten out of college and learned that I'd really love to race offshore. I'm a, I'm a pilot. So I'm a pilot. I love backcountry skiing and I love camping and, and I love sailing. And so offshore sailing by myself or with another guy was, was a way to sort of combine all that into one where you're, you're eating freeze dried food. You're trying to navigate, trying to look at weather, but you're also sailing. And and so I got really into that. And then the opportunity came up to charter this really fast boat. And I knew there was a record that was beatable to Hawaii. And so I, I bought the boat and raced it with another guy in the Trans Pack. The race is actually going on right now this year, uh to Hawaii with another guy to sort of practice the course. And then the next year I went solo and uh finished in eight and a half days and the record was 12 and a half So It was definitely very beatable, but um, a lot of days out there by yourself, you know, I was just reading a book by a guy that um, I'm sailing with in a race in a couple of weeks. And he said, you know, I wasn't looking for solitude. I was just looking for the record. You know, a lot of people get out there and they say, Oh, I love to be alone and be one with the sea and all this stuff, but it's really an athletic, you know, it's just really experience endeavor for me to be able to, to accomplish something. And, and, you know, and and some people were kind of mad that I brought such such a, you know, fast boat to a race that primarily had guys that were sort of in, you know, sailing, sailing slower, or older boats. But, you know, to me, it's, it was very difficult to handle that thing. And so I, I didn't, I didn't feel bad at all because getting that thing through eight and a half days of sailing by myself as an amateur was, was no small feat. So that was definitely a cool thing. My, my first son was born then and then I took maybe the last eight years off because I realized that if I had something happened to me with these little kids and, that wouldn't be good. So in the middle of the ocean. Your yeah, you're pretty alone <laughs> out there. You know, there's not much land yeah. here in Hawaii. So did you come
1: across any storms during that expedition?
0: Yeah. What, what happens in the Pacific mostly is you, you get these sort of nighttime squalls. And so um, luckily in the beginning, I had a really good angle and wind for the first couple of days. So I was so far ahead of the record that I sort of went into a little bit of preservation mode. And so um, at night when I saw these big storms, I'd kind of take the big spinnaker down and I'd just uh, just cruise it for for a few hours until they were gone and then put it back up. So I was because I was doing really well, I could I could take the opportunity to not have to navigate those with full sail up, which is a little bit scary. But Pacific is called the Pacific because it's calm. So nothing too bad. So you were never scared. Uh, well, there was a couple sail handling issues that happened where I had to kind of climb out, you know, over the, on the bow, okay. street, it's called this thing. And, you know, there's some times when you're a little vulnerable out there. And if you, if you fall in, obviously you're definitely going to die, you know, you got to avoid that, but you know, nothing like I've seen in the Atlantic, I've been through a lot of pretty bad stuff with, you know, 50, 60 knots and, and uh, huge waves, but nothing like that out there. No.
2: How did you train for a, what did you say it was seven days that you accomplished it in? Did you, you said you just happen. did the course once the year yep. before with someone else, and then you just went right into it the next year.
0: Yeah. That's yeah so, so it was just, to be honest, the months of like February, March, and April off the California coast are insanely huge. You know, you, you get out there, you it could, you know, a lot of times on these rainy days in San Francisco, it's calm and winds out of the South and you're sort of just chilling. And then you get offshore by hundred miles and it's just, it's honking. It's blowing 40, 50 knots, huge waves. Oh and so gosh. that's mainly what we do is we do big laps out there. And you know, when you know, you can get through that, you know, you're both solid. So we did that. And I think we did a couple of races out to the Farallons and things, but a lot of it, like I said, is boat prep. You know, it's like almost like flying where 90% of the battle is making sure that all your, all your stuff's together before you leave the ground exactly yeah, you, to, you know because if you have a problem out there it's a lot harder to solve so
2: how did you how did you have communication with anybody just in case something happened
0: oh we have you know there's a tracker there's a iridium handheld phone there's a inmarsat satcom terminal where you can email and stuff and that can oh my uh, gosh dial there's a couple different radios you have but i'm not very good with the radios you know i grew up in asia cell phones so or sat yeah, phones, true. so you you kind of, I'm not so good with the shortwave radio, but I wish I was, but there's other stuff I should prioritize learning. So mm-hmm. yeah, you're, and, you know, I made a few calls a day, call the family, call the office, mm-hmm. call friends, you know, just to talk, catch up, just get some communication with people, you know? Yeah. So.
2: Well, what, what do you do when you're sleeping? I mean, you just put the boat on Isla pilot. Is that even a thing?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and it's really cool cuz it has a bunch of accelerometers and stuff in it and so you it it really starts to learn how the boat sh- should be sailed properly so in the old days it was hard because it wouldn't when the boat you couldn't sail so fast because when the boat accelerates the 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 wind angle of the 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 wind angle that the boat senses changes a lot because of the boat's motion through the water so mm-hmm. uh, it needs sort of a computer and accelerometer to understand what the real wind angle is Um, versus the one like if you stick your head out your sunroof and your car going 60 most of the time the wind's going to be coming from the front of the car right if if, if it was blowing 60 from the side you'd feel it you'd feel it maybe not so much from the front but usually it's not blowing 60 on the highway so you know the the boat has to understand what the real actual on-deck wind is
1: well thank you so much for coming on the podcast i really appreciate it hearing about your role and your past career has been really interesting so i just want to say thank you
0: Cool. Yeah, so uh, thank you guys. Congrats on doing this. It's, um, it's awesome. And anything you need from follow-up follow from me, just let me
1: know. Thank you guys so much for joining us. That officially wraps up the real estate industry. If you like what we're doing, make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tap into Young Enterprises' social media pages. Let us know how these episodes are helping you unlock your career too. We'd love to hear it. Until next time.
0: And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies
1: of blue. Copyrighted music was used during this podcast.